Thank you for joining us for another lesson from God's Word. The West Huntsville Church of Christ at Providence is located at 1519 Old Monrovia Road, Northwest, Huntsville, Alabama, 35806. Anytime you're in the Huntsville area, we hope you'll stop in and be part of our worship. Sunday morning worship is at 9 o'clock, with Bible class immediately following. Sunday evening worship is at 5. Midweek Bible study is held Wednesdays at 7. It is time for us to begin. We want to welcome you, as always, to our midweek Bible study. We hope that you've had a good day today. It's always good to get out of the world and to come together as brothers and sisters in Christ, study God's Word, have some fellowship, nice break in the middle of the week from the world. And so we appreciate you being here with us tonight. We were talking beforehand that this is the third Wednesday night in a row we've had bad weather. So we don't know if it's me, or if it's the topic, or if it's uh, some mysterious influence of Satan trying to thwart the attendance of the class, or what. So we're we're not sure. But anyway, hopefully uh, this one too will not be very dangerous for us as we go home tonight. The class, again, is fortifying our faith. The purpose of it is to reassure us our, our belief is what we call a rational belief. It is not a blind faith. It is a belief that is based on the evidence. And so we are trying to make sure that we can be confident and that we have really no basis for concern when we are challenged or opposed. Next week, Tom Collier is going to start and go for three weeks and discuss what he has prepared for us as it relates to science and faith. Then after that, Ben Stevenson will come forward and he will do two or three weeks based on the Christian life and culture, uh, which, of course, should be very interesting. Um, We've already pointed out that, you know, Christianity has always been under assault, but it sure does seem... And I'm sure it's always seemed this way to every generation that it just seems to be worse for us. But, you know, I'm sure people in past have said that, too. So So tonight we're going to continue our discussion concerning the problem of evil as it pertains to being an attack on God. So there are those who say that because of the existence of evil, that God simply cannot exist. And so... That's what we're going to continue to discuss tonight. And remember, last week we talked about three general ways that this is typically addressed. The atheist will affirm the reality of evil, but deny the existence of God. The pantheist will deny the existence of evil, yet affirm the existence of God. And... The theist will affirm the the reality of evil and will affirm the reality of God. And so what we're trying to do here in this class, in this discussion, and we probably won't get through all of this, I've asked Paul to let me come back behind Ben at the end and finish up thoughts and wrap up, uh, summarize what we've discussed, and then we'll move on to a different class and a different set of teachers. But our goal is to try to demonstrate this last point. That is the last point, uh, is the position to hold. So we're in the middle of defining what evil is, and so let's 
move past some of, uh, okay, I assume it's on. There we go. Let's move past some of the stuff that we talked about last week. And we were, we were beginning to talk about Thomas B. Warren's definition of evil. And again, I told you that, you know, because I'm up here in front of you, I get to select which one I want to go with. It's not just because of that, but I find that Thomas B. Warren, who was a great philosopher and in his own right, in theologian, has, I think, put together a, a good definition of evil as it pertains to the existence of God as well. So let's go back through it again. And he's defining evil in terms of asking five questions. And so let's read through those questions, and then we will go from there. So remember, the first one was talking about what is uh, intrinsically good. So one pertinent question is, what is intrinsically good? That is, what is good in and of itself? An end and not merely as a means to an end. Vital to the proper answer to this question is a recognition of God's purpose in creating man for sonship with himself and concomitantly or concurrently at the same time as well as for brotherhood with his fellow man. Thus, whatever is filial, in other words, familial, family relationships and fraternal, brotherly relationships is intrinsically good. It is intrinsically good to believe in God, to honor God, to obey God. It is intrinsically good to become a son of God and to live as a son of God. Whatever is filial and or fraternal can never, under any circumstances, be evil. So this is the first question. Now there's some big words in there, words that I certainly don't typically use, but I think uh, that if you think about what he's asking, it makes sense. A second question is, what is intrinsically evil? Only that intrinsically evil which is unfilial or not familiar, doesn't promote, or is not a fam familiar relationship, and or unfraternal, not brotherly. It is intrinsically evil to reject God, to fail to love God, to rebel against God, to refuse to honor and obey God, to be self-centered rather than God-centered. It is intrinsically evil to fail to be a son of God and to be out of fellowship with God. It can never be good in any sort of circumstance to be unfilial and or unfraternal. Remember that what we're trying to do here is we're trying to approach this without the scriptures. Why is that? Because until you establish the, word, the existence of God, you can't appeal to the word of God. That's why we're doing this. So this is why we're going through this exercise. <clears throat> A third relevant question is, what is instrumentally good as opposed to intrinsically good? That which helps to bring about or to bring to pass that which is filial and or fraternal is instrumentally good. To say that something is instrumentally good is to say that it is good as a means, not that it is good as an end within and of itself. And we'll talk about these slight differences in the terminology in just a moment when we get to uh, suffering and its relationship with evil. 
A fourth question is what is instrumentally evil? It's that which hinders that which is filial and or fraternal is instrumentally evil. So in other words, anything that is going to disrupt uh, or influence you turning from God or turning from a proper relationship, a spiritual relationship with each other is instrumentally evil. All right, and then he asked a fifth question. And he asked, what is then to be valued? Only that is properly valued, which is either intrinsically good or instrumentally good. Nothing which is either intrinsically evil or instrumentally evil should ever, under any circumstances, be valued. Okay, so that was uh, some quite uh, lofty-sounding, technical-sounding information. So what does all this mean? And so that's what we want to talk about next. So what one thing we can take away from this, then, is that if you think about it, much suffering, then, is not evil in and of itself because those who would oppose God would equate suffering with evil. So what we're trying to say here is that suffering is not intrinsically evil. It's not evil within and of itself. Suffering, if you think about it, is what we're going to call morally neutral. It depends on whether the suffering leads the sufferer or those who observe the suffering closer to God or farther away from Him. Okay? So on most occasions of suffering, due to things like natural disasters, animal attacks, attacks from other humans, etc., can result in either good or evil, depending on the reaction to it. Okay? So hopefully you're able to follow this line of thinking. So we would say then it's an error then to identify these instances of suffering as being evil when they are either instrumentally good or instrumentally evil based on the response of those who observe it, uh, including the one who's actually experiencing the suffering. And I think we can all think of examples of people that we know who have suffered much, but good came from it, or suffered much and never lost their faith in God. So suffering then results from conditions as to what uh, Thomas B. Warren called the ideal environment for soul-making. So hopefully you can see where his definition leads you to. This environment that we live in then is here to prepare us for eternity. That's what we're talking about. And that's what he calls the ideal environment for soul-making. So this ideal environment for soul-making would be challenging. Life is definitely challenging for us. It would allow man to be a free moral agent. In other words, he's allowed to make choices for himself. And this is really important. This is a really important thing to think about and remember. It would be law-abiding. And that would imply that there is an objective truth. If, if the environment is to be law-abiding, then 
what is the source of law. There has to be an objective truth behind that. It would be what he calls teleological, and that's something that's used quite frequently in Christian evidences, which means that it would be indicative of design. So design would mean that this environment could be depended on for regularity of purpose. So there are things that we can count on, right? If I go jump off the building, I can pretty much determine what's going to happen, can I, with regularity. I might not get the opportunity to do it more than once, though. Uh, but I can be pretty much guaranteed through observation or experience uh, it's going to end bad for me, especially if I jump off of a multi-story building. So that's just one silly example, but I think you know what I'm talking about. It would allow man to learn things that he most needs to learn. So in other words, we talked about, we just got through talking about the Word of God and how it's accurate and how we can depend on it. We can be guaranteed that what we have in English today in our laps is the Word of God. So what we would say then is that God has preserved the Word for men throughout the generations. And it has promoted those things which would be most needed for us to learn. It would also supply man's basic needs, in other words, the types of things that we need to sustain physical life, and also the types of things would also allow us to have really good mental health. But choice, again, is key to all of this. So even if these conditions are being met, all these conditions that we just mentioned, this is important. There is no way to guarantee that man will not suffer. There's no way to prevent suffering from occurring. So why is that? It's because such an environment that we're talking about brings out both the best and the worst in mankind. Do we have a better example of bringing out the best and the worst in mankind than what is going on right now in Ukraine? I don't believe we have a better example. So what do we see going on there? We see the best of mankind showing extraordinary efforts to help those impacted by the war. You know, even we had the opportunity to participate in that by collecting these buckets and things. And who knows where that will go and how much good it will, it will uh, do. But we also see the worst of mankind being observed by the unwarranted aggression of one country toward another and the corruption that is surrounding it and the atrocities that we see taking place. It's, it's terrible. So the point is, is that we see both the best and the worst in mankind being carried out. Another example that you can think of that I thought of was like the earthquake back in Haiti back in 2010, a major earthquake. Again, we saw the best in mankind shown by those trying to help. But we also saw the worst of mankind by looters and other terrible things that occurred in the aftermath. And you can go on and on and on. You can think back to 20, 2011 when we had the April tornadoes, speaking of bad weather, um, and, you know, all the things that came from that. So this kind of environment that we live in actually makes all these things possible, is what we're trying to say. So skeptics who want to make this, this argument charge that God would be, if he existed, would be compelled instead to create an environment that would more closely resemble paradise. And it would be controlled, and it would be restricted. 
But this simply doesn't correspond to the evidence that we see, does it? Not in the environment that we live in, for sure. The environment that we live in and that was created was created so that man can freely choose. Man can freely choose to love, can freely choose to honor and obey God, but also man can freely choose to hate, can choose to dishonor, and can choose to reject God. So we are free moral agents. We have the ability to make a choice. So thinking about suffering, suffering is a reality in the world in which we live. And so if we think about it based on what we just talked about, it can't be possible then that suffering is intrinsically evil. In other words, it's, it's evil within and of itself. Suffering can be the consequence of evil that is an action that we took ourselves, or it can be an action of others. So we can suffer from our own decisions, or we can suffer from the wrong decision that someone else makes. Just like the, the shooting in New York City this week in the subway. That's suffering based on the decision, the bad decision, the poor decision that the gentleman who is the, the suspect made. So suffering could also result, though, from a completely non-moral, amoral source, right? Storms, uh, animals, uh, etc. You know, I've heard several stories of runners. You know, I used to be a runner running through national parks and getting attacked and killed by a bear, right? Just come out of the woods and, and there you go. So um, now suffering can't be defended as evil because the source nor the result is evil in and of itself. So then what exactly is evil? Well, according to Thomas B. Warren, following his definition... It's sin. Sin is really the only intrinsically evil thing. Why is that? Because it rejects God. It, re it rejects the love of God. It does not love God. It rebels against God. It's self-centered. You know, we can think of great passages in the Bible, you know, without using it to help prove this, but we can think about passages that talk about the love of God and, and how we are to love each other. And it wants no fellowship with the followers of God. So, I like this definition. I mean, there's many definitions that are out there that could be, but I think this one is, is, is good in the sense that it's logical and it helps define the term evil in the context so as to be a powerful proof, actually, for God. <clears throat> So we say that sin is the only intrinsically evil thing. All right, so, so, so based on this, then, let's, let's have further discussion. So let's then ask ourselves, okay, well then, is the existence of evil evidence against God? Someone may state that the existence of evil is indeed evidence against God, but when they say that, they have to admit that evil really, absolutely, 
and objectively exist. Otherwise, if evil doesn't really exist, except in the beliefs or the feelings or the emotions of someone who is an objector, then there is really no argument to be made against God. And why is that? Well, the objection can't simply be one of dislike for God. It can't be simply based on some rage that I may have against God. It has to count as real evidence against God for it to have any significance or any weight of argument against the existence of God. All right, so neither can majority opinion decide what is evil and what is not. And we know this for sure because what is evil today in the future or maybe even next week may not be evil. We all know and can think of things in the past which were definitely considered to be evil things and now they are not considered that way at all or they're at least left up to a personal choice. That, you know, that's a popular term that's used for doing those things that we think, you know, we would think that are wrong. So in this case, a subjectively based objection is really no argument against God at all because you can't, you can't make up your mind what evil is and then someone else define it differently. It just doesn't work that way. It doesn't logically add up, and it's not really a good reasoning against the existence of God if you want to try to use evil in that way. So the only possible way that an objection might work is to really admit that evil really, really does exist. All right, so now, if you really admit that evil actually exists, then we need to agree that evil is evil for all persons, for all times, for all places. Right? If you're going to call something evil, then it has to be the same for everybody, at all times, in all places. In other words, it needs to be objective. Otherwise, you can't make it be an argument against an omnipotent, omniscient, and omnibenevolent God. So to admit, though, that the existence of something that is evil is for all people, for all places, for all time, actually points to evidence for God. And why is that? Because if you say that evil is the same for all people, for all places, for all time, then that implies that there's a standard, doesn't it? There must be an absolute standard. Whether men want to call evil good and good evil... You know, men have always done that and will continue to do that. But there has to be an absolute standard if we can agree on what I'm stating here. So, and if there is an absolute standard, then what that's going to imply is that moral behavior, good moral behavior does exist, which is going to require an absolute moral law which, guess what, is going to imply an absolute moral lawgiver. That's where the logic leads you to. So in other words, an absolute standard of moral behavior does, does exist, and then an absolute moral lawgiver does exist. Now, the only possible way that the objector could try to rescue this argument 
is to actually say that, well, that absolute moral lawgiver is not the God of the Bible. And you have people that will do that. They will, they will argue that it's not the God of the Bible that we read about. All right, so let's talk then about two objections, the, 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 the primary two ways that those who make this claim that the existence of evil is evidence against God. They object in two ways. One we'll call the logical argument or the logical problem of evil, and then the other one we'll call the probabilistic argument of evil. All right, so let's look at this logical problem of evil. So Epicurus said, whence evil if there be a God? So he's assuming already, right, in just that, that this is a contradiction. David Hume, who is a famous atheist and philosopher, said this, if he, that is God, is willing to prevent evil, is he willing to prevent evil but not able, then he is impotent. Is he able but not willing? Then he's malevolent. Is he both able and willing? Whence then is evil? So you can see what he's saying is that if if God is all-powerful and if he's good, then evil cannot exist and vice versa. If evil exists, then God doesn't exist. Also, let's look at J.L. Mackey, what he had to say. He's a, he's a uh, philosophy writer. He says this, God is omnipotent. That is, God is wholly good, and yet evil exists. There seems to be some contradiction between these three propositions, so that if any two of them were true, the third would be false. But at the same time, all three are essential parts of most theological positions. The theologian, it seems, at once must adhere and cannot consistently adhere to all three. And he continues, that good is opposed to evil in such a way that a good thing always eliminates evil as far as it can and that there are no limits to what an omnipotent thing can do. From these, it follows that a good, omnipotent thing eliminates evil completely, and then the propositions that a good, omnipotent thing exists and that evil exists are not compatible. So you can see the proposition and the premises and the assumptions that he is making to set up his argument. So to summarize, Mackey's saying that if a good, omnipotent thing exists, then evil doesn't exist. But on the other hand, if evil exists, then no good, omnipotent thing exists. So he's saying that these two things are contradictory to each other. All right, so let's break this down piece by piece, and let's look and, and, and reason through this. So Mackey makes the argument there are no limits to what an omnipotent thing can do. Well, let's think about this and respond. If we think about the definition that we went through with Thomas B. Warren and we, and we reasoned through that, this actually doesn't 
makes sense, what Mackey's saying here. It's not the case. An omnipotent being cannot do what is logically absurd. And so the principle of what is called non-contradiction or the excluded middle apply. So what is that? That's just fancy language for a thing cannot both exist and not exist at the same time in the same sense. Okay? So again, a thing cannot be and not be at the same time in the same sense. Okay, so what do you, what do you mean by that? Well, this is what we mean. Not even an omnipotent being can create humans who are free moral agents and at the same time guarantee that those free moral agents would never abuse that freedom. So in other words, God cannot create men who are both free and not free. That in and of itself is a contradiction, but that's not what has happened. So an omnipotent being also, here's another point, an omnipotent being is not limited by anything outside of himself, but rather he's limited, an omnipotent being is limited by his own nature. And an omnipotent being is not going to do that which violates his own character. And so if we think about this in terms of God, and being an omnipotent being, and we'll talk a little bit more about this. He is limited by his nature, and it does not cause him to do things which are logically absurd. So another point to Mackey's argument, good is opposed to evil in such a way that a good thing always eliminates evil as far as it can, which is not necessarily true, just using common sense. And a good omnipotent thing eliminates evil completely. So these are, these are pretty strong assumptions that are being made. So how do we respond to this? Well, let's think about it. God being omnipotent, he's perfect in love. In other words, he's complete in love. He's complete in mercy. He's complete in holiness and truth and justice and goodness. So to say that God is perfect in goodness is then to say that, thinking about the definition that we gave, he would then never plan or do anything that was not intrinsically good or instrumentally good or that violates or is not in harmony with his own nature. So another way to say this is that God loves and supports that which is good, but he hates and does not support that which is evil. I hope this is helping, making sense. Maybe it's just, I don't know. Uh, Every time I look out there, sometimes I look at some puzzled faces and I worry. Not because of you, I worry because of my presentation. thats uh, I don't want to get in the way of the message, so... So another way to, uh, I mean, it's not logical then to imagine that people, now, now get this, this is important. It's not logical to imagine that people who are free moral agents who choose to abuse their, their ability to choose 
in a violent way. So they abuse their choice in a violent way. They do something wrong. They do, they do something um, that we would term evil, if you will. Through sin, remember our definition, that the result of their choices would always turn out to be good. Right? So someone is abusing their choice, yet the end result turns out to be good. Right? So it's not logical to imagine people who are, are that way, or that would guarantee that it would always be good and never bad. This would mean that people then were not really free. In other words, we would be robots. So we could go around making choices, but what it would mean is that the choice or the result of the choice would already be predetermined for us. And so then we become, uh, we're, not, we're not free. So if, as previously stated, evil is really a violation of both sonship to God and brotherhood to man, then evil is found only in the actions and thoughts of the man. So then it logically follows that no inanimate thing, right? We talked about this earlier, an earthquake, a tornado, things like that, nor a non-human thing like a plant, an insect, or an animal can do what is evil. And that's because nothing that is subhuman has the ability to become a son of God or a brother to man. But it is true that God permits evil in the sense that men are free to engage in it. They can sponsor it. They can plan it. They can influence others to engage in it and to do it. But God does not permit evil in the sense that he wishes for it to happen. This is against his will and it's not in harmony with it. So, if there's no possibility of disobedience and the ability to freely choose to participate in evil, then there really can be no meaning to what we would call good or virtue, moral goodness, or freely chosen good either. So we would just merely act. So we would just be robots, basically, and our actions would neither be good nor bad. They would simply just be and by the way, if you think about it, this is what those who would um, look to evolution and look to naturalism, this is where their belief system takes you. You just merely act. You just are. And just whatever happens, happens. Well, not even God, not even God, an omnipotent being, could prevent man's free participation in evil because it's against his nature. And it also would be infringing on the nature of the man. So not even God could, could give freedom of choice to man and then guarantee that it would never be abused or misused. So given these thoughts this logical problem, this so-called logical problem of evil is really not an issue for us. So we then want to propose that it makes perfectly logical sense that evil does indeed exist, yet also God exists.
All right, I'm going to keep going. So the next problem or the next argument against God using evil is what we call the probabilistic problem of evil. There were a couple of philosophers that wrote back in the 1960s, Madden and Hare, and this is what they had to say. If God is unlimited in power and goodness, why is there so much prima facie or apparent, gratuitous or unnecessary, not needed evil in the world? If he is unlimited in power, he should be able to remove unnecessary evil. And if he is unlimited in goodness, he would want to remove it, but he does not. So apparently, he is limited either in power or goodness, or he doesn't exist at all. A gentleman named Michael Peterson sheds a little light on this for us, and he says this, Unlike the logical version of the problem of evil, which seeks to show that Christian theism is internally inconsistent, The evidential version purports that given the facts of evil, theism is improbable. Essentially, theism is treated as a highly general explanatory scheme which can be confirmed or disconfirmed according to relevant evidence. Evil is cited then as a strong negative evidence against theism. In this way, rational grounds are provided for believing that theism is unlikely or implausible. So, looking at this, it's interesting to note that if God's existence is only unlikely and implausible or improbable, then we can know this. We can know that the objector, for all the objector knows, it could actually exist, right? If it's unlikely or improbable, that also means it's It's also likely and also probable. And if that is the case, then one cannot really conclusively use this argument to argue against the existence of God as an atheist. And what we would say then is that someone who says, well, God is implausible, it's highly unlikely, uh, we would call that person an agnostic. So this form of the argument has become more popular because it's more fuzzy and it fits in better with the postmodernist mindset which says that there is no objective truth. And so if there is no objective truth, then we are left to walk around with a great deal of uncertainty. And so that's why this particular argument is so popular and appeals to, to many today. But in reality, it's a weaker claim uh, because an atheist can't really affirm with assurance their claim that I know that God does not exist. They're just admitting that they can't do that here just by trying to prop up this argument. So let's, let's take a look at this and break it down a little bit and let's talk about a response to this. So, um, restated then, what we're going to say is that it's highly unlikely or highly implausible that God exists due to the existence of what we call gratuitous, pointless evils in the world. Now, I would say that, give, 
if Paul gives me time, we will talk about some of those pointless and gratuitous types of evil later on uh, after uh, Tom and, and Ben have had their opportunity to come up and speak to us. And uh, we'll try to tackle some of the very specific examples of, of what people use against the existence of God. So we're just trying to lay the logical foundation for this whole thing. So let's hurry up and try to get through this, and we'll finish this and put this to bed before the, the bell rings. So we recall that the ideal environment for soul-making must be a neutral environment such that it's just as possible for suffering to happen to an innocent person as it would be for a guilty person, right? It's equal either way. Then the term evil cannot appropriately be attached to the term suffering because we know that suffering is not pleasant, it's never desired, it can be thought of as bad. I think we can all agree to that. So indeed, some suffering, though, may be the direct consequence, and we've already stated this as well, of a person's own sin, their own wrongdoing. It could also be the result of evil actions of others. But we said earlier that suffering is not intrinsically evil in and of itself. And why is that? It's because it's either instrumentally good or it's instrumentally evil based upon how it is reacted to by the person who's actually suffering or the people who are witnessing that suffering going on. So we may observe someone who is suffering, and we may call that evil. But the person going through it might not say that. So therefore, gratuitous evil is not really evidence that can be used to disprove God because there is the possibility that the resulting suffering may have some merit. So if we see a gentleman go into a burning building and he gets burned, but he saves a baby. Think about that example. And the gentleman who was burned actually views it as a good thing. Not being burned a good thing, but the good act had merit in that he saved the baby's life. So this is just an example. Uh, maybe not a great example, but it is an example that I thought of, and maybe I should choose a better example. But, um, but I'm trying to illustrate the point that it depends on how the person going through it or the people witnessing the suffering consider suffering. So the objector has to know that in all cases that suffering really is indeed evil, since no objector, no one objecting to God, can know that all suffering is evil, and no objector can know that there is absolutely no point whatever to an instance of suffering, then it can't be used as an argument against God. So what we're trying to say here is that no one can stand in the place of God and decide when suffering has merit or when it does not. So recall also that what is called evil must really be evil for all persons in all places in all times, and evil is that which, which violates an absolute standard of good. If there is an absolute standard of good, what does that imply? It implies that there has to be an absolute moral law, which implies that there has to be an absolute moral lawgiver, and consequently, by admitting the reality of evil, they are actually affirming the existence of God. That's pretty, pretty, pretty powerful. All right, so then to round this up, to say that it is unlikely or it's highly implausible that God exists is not really a position of what we would call doubtless uncertainty. So without a shadow of a doubt, I know that God does not exist because evil exists. An atheist 
affirms that I know that God does not exist. If the atheist cannot or is unwilling to prove his own affirmation, then they're nothing more than an agnostic. And if you are an agnostic, for all you know, since they don't know for sure whether God does not exist, guess what? God may really exist. So that's the probabilistic argument, and hopefully we've answered uh, it with a response that would be acceptable to you. Um, that's, that's it. Uh, I know this was very um, maybe dry and bland, uh, maybe uh, not appealing to you, but you have to engage people sometimes in the way that they make their accusations and they engage you. And in this case, we were trying to do it without the Bible. And so you might not engage a person that you might find on the street in this way, but, you know, those who are the so-called smart people think this way, and because they are the smart people and we're not so smart, then we have a tendency to think, well, we need to believe what the smart people think. And what we're trying to illustrate is that the smart people aren't always so smart. Thank you. We hope you have enjoyed this lesson from God's Word. If you would like to continue your study of New Testament Christianity, please send your name and address to World Bible School, West Huntsville Church of Christ, 1519 Old Monrovia Road, Northwest, Huntsville, Alabama, 35806. Or if you prefer, send your name and address by email to wbs at westhuntsville.org.